Hi, my name is Yaa Jesse, and you are listening to Storybound. I will be reading an excerpt from my novel, Transcendent Kingdom. Welcome to Storybound, presented by Lit Hub Radio and the Podglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. In just a little bit, you'll get to hear Ya Jesse read an excerpt from her book, Transcendent Kingdom, with original music by Tim Carplus. And if you stick around until after the credits, you'll get to hear a little bit about the digital book world gathering happening this month. Whenever I think of my mother, I picture a queen-sized bed with her lying in it a practiced stillness filling the room. For months on end, she colonized that bed like a virus. The first time, when I was a child, and then again, when I was a graduate student. The first time, I was sent to Ghana to wait her out. While there, I was walking through Kejitia Market with my aunt when she grabbed my arm and pointed. Look, a crazy person, she said in Chui. Do you see? A crazy person. I was mortified. My aunt was speaking so loudly, and the man, tall, with dust caked into his dreadlocks, was within earshot. I see, I see, I answered in a low hiss. The man continued past us, mumbling to himself as he waved his hands about in gestures that only he could understand. My aunt nodded, satisfied, and we kept walking past the hordes of people gathered in that agoraphobia-inducing market until we reached the stall where we would spend the rest of the morning attempting to sell knockoff handbags. In my three months there, we sold only four bags. Even now, I don't completely understand why my aunt singled the man out to me. Maybe she thought there were no crazy people in America that I had never seen one before. Or maybe she was thinking about my mother, about the real reason I was stuck in Ghana that summer, sweating in a stall with an aunt I hardly knew while my mother healed at home in Alabama. I was 11 and I could see that my mother wasn't sick, not in the ways that I was used to. I didn't understand what my mother needed healing from. I didn't understand but I did. And my embarrassment at my aunt's loud gesture had as much to do with my understanding as it did with the man who had passed us by. My aunt was saying, that, that is what crazy looks like. But instead, what I heard was my mother's name. What I saw was my mother's face, still as lake water, the pastor's hand resting gently on her forehead his prayer, a light hum that made the room buzz. I'm not sure I know what crazy looks like, but even today, when I hear the word, I picture a split screen, the dreadlocked man in Kejitia on one side, my mother lying in bed on the other. I think about how no one at all reacted to that man in the market, not in fear or disgust, nothing, save my aunt who wanted me to look He was, it seemed to me, at perfect peace, even as he gesticulated wildly, even as he mumbled, 
But my mother, in her bed, infinitely still, was wild inside. The second time it happened, I got a phone call while I was working in my lab at Stanford. I'd had to separate two of my mice because they were ripping each other to bits in that shoebox of a home we kept them in. I found a piece of flesh in one corner of the box, but I couldn't tell which mouse it came from at first. Both were bleeding and frenzied, scurrying away from me when I tried to grab them, even though there was nowhere to run. Look, Gifty, she hasn't been to church in nearly a month. I've been calling the house, but she won't pick up. I go by sometimes and make sure she's got food and everything, but I think, I think it's happening again. I didn't say anything. The mice had calmed down considerably, but I was still shaken by the sight of them and worried about my research, worried about everything. Gifty, Pastor John said, she should come stay with me. I'm not sure how the pastor got my mother on the plane. When I picked her up at SFO, she looked completely vacant, her body limp. I imagined Pastor John folding her up the way you would a jumpsuit, arms crossed about the chest in an X, legs pulled up to meet them, then tucking her safely into a suitcase complete with a handle with care sticker before passing her off to the flight attendant. I gave her a stiff hug and she shrank from my touch. I took a deep breath. Did you check a bag? I asked. Debbie, she said. Okay, no bags. Great, we can go straight to the car. The saccharine cheeriness of my voice annoyed me so much, I bit my tongue in an attempt to bite it back. I felt a prick of blood and sucked it away. She followed me to my Prius. Under better circumstances, she would have made fun of my car, an oddity to her after years of Alabama pickup trucks and SUVs. Gifty, my bleeding heart, she sometimes called me. I don't know where she'd picked up the phrase, but I figured it was probably used derogatorily by Pastor John and the various TV preachers she liked to watch while she cooked to describe people who, like me, had defected from Alabama to live among the sinners of the world, presumably because the excessive bleeding of our hearts made us too weak to tough it out among the hardy, the chosen of Christ in the Bible Belt. She loved Billy Graham, who said things like, a real Christian is the one who can give his pet parrot to the town gossip. Cruel, I thought when I was a child, to give away your pet parrot. The funny thing about the phrases that my mom picked up is that she always got them a little wrong. I was her bleeding heart, not a bleeding heart. It's a crime shame, not a crying shame. She had a little Southern accent that tinted her Ghanaian one. It made me think of my friend Anne, whose hair was brown, except on some days when the sunlight touched her just so, and suddenly you saw red. In the car, she stared out of the passenger side window, quiet as a church mouse. I tried to imagine the scenery the way she might be seeing it. When I'd first arrived in California, everything had looked so beautiful to me. Even the grass, yellowed, scorched from the sun and the seemingly endless drought, had looked otherworldly. This must be Mars, I thought, because how could this be America too? 
I pictured the drab green pastures of my childhood, the small hills we called mountains. The vastness of this Western landscape overwhelmed me. I'd come to California because I wanted to get lost, to find. In college, I'd read Walden because a boy I found beautiful found the book beautiful. I understood nothing but highlighted everything, including this. Not till we are lost, in other words, not till we have lost the world, do we begin to find ourselves and realize where we are and the infinite extent of our relations. You are listening to Storybound. And now for a short break. And now we return from our break. If my mother was moved by the landscape too, I couldn't tell. We lurched forward in traffic and I caught the eye of a man in the car next to ours. He quickly looked away, then looked back, then away again. I wanted to make him uncomfortable or maybe just to transfer my own discomfort to him. And so I kept staring. I could see in the way that he gripped the steering wheel that he was trying not to look at me again. His knuckles were pale, veiny, rimmed with red. He gave up, shot me an exasperated look, mouthed, what? I've always found that traffic on a bridge brings everyone closer to their own personal edge. Inside each car, a snapshot of a breaking point. Drivers looking out toward the water and wondering, what if, could there be another way out? We scooted forward again, In the scrum of cars, the man seemed almost close enough to touch. What would he do if he could touch me? If he didn't have to contain all of that rage inside his Honda Accord, where would it go? Are you hungry? I asked my mother, finally turning away. She shrugged, still staring out of the window. The last time this happened, she had lost 70 pounds in two months. When I came back from my summer in Ghana, I had hardly recognized her, this woman who had always found skinny people offensive, as though a kind of laziness or failure of character kept them from appreciating the pure joy that is a good meal. Then she joined their ranks. Her cheeks sank, her stomach deflated. She hollowed, disappeared. I was determined not to let this happen again. I'd bought a Ghanaian cookbook online to make up for the years I'd spent avoiding my mother's kitchen, and I'd practiced a few of the dishes in the days leading up to my mother's arrival, hoping to perfect them before I saw her. I'd bought a deep fryer, even though my grad student stipend left little room in my budget for extravagances like bofrut or plantains. Fried food was my mother's favorite. Her mother had made fried food from a cart on the side of the road in Kumasi. My grandmother was a Fanti woman from Abanzit, a sea town. 
and she was notorious for despising Ashantis, so much so that she refused to speak Chui, even after 20 years of living in the Ashanti capital. If you bought her food, you had to listen to her language. We're here, I said, rushing to help my mother get out of the car. She walked a little ahead of me, even though she'd never been to this apartment before. She'd visited me in California only a couple of times. Sorry for the mess, I said, but there was no mess. None that my eyes could see anyway. But my eyes were not hers. Every time she visited me over the years, she'd sweep her finger along things that never occurred to me to clean. The backs of blinds, the hinges of doors, then present the dusty, blackened finger to me in accusation, and I could do nothing but shrug. Cleanliness is godliness, she used to say. Cleanliness is next to godliness, I would correct, and she would scowl. What was the difference? I pointed her toward the bedroom, and silently, she crawled into bed and drifted off into sleep. As soon as I heard the sound of soft snoring, I sneaked out of the apartment and went to check on my mice. Though I had separated them, the one with the largest wounds was hunched over from pain in the corner of the box. Watching him, I wasn't sure he would live much longer. It filled me with an inexplicable sorrow. And when my lab mate, Han, found me 20 minutes later, crying in the corner of the room, I knew I would be too mortified to admit that the thought of a mouse's death was the cause of my tears. Bad date, I told Han. A look of horror passed over his face as he mustered up a few pitiful words of comfort, and I could imagine what he was thinking. I went into the hard sciences so I wouldn't have to be around emotional women. My crying turned to laughter, loud and phlegmy, and the look of horror on his face deepened until his ears flushed as red as a stop sign. I stopped laughing and rushed out of the lab and into the restroom, where I stared at myself in the mirror. My eyes were puffy and red, my nose looked bruised, the skin around my nostrils dry and scaly from the tissues. Get a hold of yourself, I said to the woman in the mirror, but doing so felt cliché like I was reenacting a scene out of a movie. And so I started to feel like I didn't have a self to get a hold of, or rather, I had a million selves, too many to gather. One was in the bathroom playing a role, another in the lab staring at my wounded mouse, an animal about whom I felt nothing at all, yet whose pain had reduced me somehow, or multiplied me. Another self was still thinking about my mother. The mouse fight had rattled me into checking on my mice more than I needed to, trying to keep ahead of the feeling. When I got to the lab the day of my mother's arrival, Han was already there, performing surgery on his mice. As was usually the case whenever Han arrived at the lab first, the thermostat was turned down low. I shivered, and he looked up from his work. Hey, he said. Hey. Though we'd been sharing this space for months now, we hardly ever said more than this to each other, 
except for the day he'd found me crying. Hans smiled at me more now, but his ears still burned bright red if I tried to push our conversation past that initial greeting. I checked in on my mice and my experiments. No fights, no surprises. I drove back to my apartment. In the bedroom, my mother still lay underneath a cloud of covers. A sound like a purr floated out from her lips. I had been living alone for so long that even that soft noise, hardly more than a hum, unnerved me. I'd forgotten what it was like to live with my mother, to care for her. For a long time, most of my life, in fact, it had been just me and her. But this pairing was unnatural. She knew it, and I knew it, and we both tried to ignore what we knew to be true. There used to be four of us, then three, two. When my mother goes, whether by choice or not, there will only be one. You are listening to Storybound. And now for a short break. And now we return from our break. My mother slept all day and all night, every day every night. She was immovable. Whenever I could, I would try to convince her to eat something. I'd taken to making coco, my favorite childhood meal. I had to go to three different stores to find the right kind of millet, the right kind of corn husks, the right peanuts to sprinkle on top. I hoped the porridge would go down thoughtlessly. I'd leave a bowl of it by her bedside in the morning before I left for work. And when I returned, the top layer would be covered in film, the layer underneath that hardened, so that when I scraped it into the sink, I felt the effort of it. My mother's back was always turned to me. It was like she had an internal sensor for when I'd be entering the room to deliver the coco. I could picture the movie montage of us, the days spelled out on the bottom of the screen, my outfits changing, our actions the same. After about five days of this, I entered the room and my mother was awake and facing me. Gifty, she said as I set the bowl of cocoa down. Do you still pray? It would have been kinder to lie, but I wasn't kind anymore. Maybe I never had been. I vaguely remembered a childhood kindness, but maybe I was conflating innocence and kindness. I felt so little continuity between who I was as a young child and who I was now that it seemed pointless to even consider showing my mother something like mercy. Would I have been merciful when I was a child? No, I answered. When I was a child, I prayed. I studied my Bible and kept a journal with letters to God. I was a paranoid journal keeper, so I made code names for all the people in my life whom I wanted God to punish. Reading the journal makes it clear that I was a real 
sinners-in-the-hands-of-an-angry-God kind of Christian, and I believed in the redemptive power of punishment. For it is said that when that due time or appointed time comes, their foot shall slide, then they shall be left to fall as they are inclined by their own weight. The code name I gave my mother was the Black Mamba because we just learned about the snakes in school. The movie the teacher showed us that day featured a seven-foot-long snake that looked like a slender woman in a skin-tight leather dress slithering across the Sahara in pursuit of a bush squirrel. In my journal, the night we learned about the snakes, I wrote, Dear God, the black mamba has been really mean to me lately. Yesterday, she told me that if I didn't clean my room, no one would want to marry me. My brother, Nana, was codenamed Buzz. I don't remember why now. In the first few years of my journal keeping, Buzz was my hero. Dear God, Buzz ran after the ice cream truck today. He bought a firecracker popsicle for himself and a Flintstones push pop for me. Or, dear God, at the rec center today, none of the other kids wanted to be my partner for the three-legged race because they said I was too little. But then Buzz came over and he said that he would do it. And guess what? We won, and I got a trophy. Sometimes he annoyed me, but back then his offenses were innocuous, trivial. Dear God, Buzz keeps coming into my room without knocking. I can't stand him. But after a few years, my pleas for God's intervention became something else entirely. Dear God, when Buzz came home last night, he started yelling at TBM, and I could hear her crying. So I went downstairs to look, even though I was supposed to be in bed. She told him to keep quiet or he would wake me, but then he picked up the TV and smashed it on the floor and punched a hole in the wall, and his hand was bleeding, and TBM started crying, and she looked up and saw me, and I ran back to my room while Buzz screamed, get the fuck out of here, you nosy cunt. What is a cunt? I was 10 when I wrote that entry. I was smart enough to use the code names and make note of new vocabulary words, but not smart enough to see that anyone who could read could easily crack my code. I hid the journal under my mattress, but because my mother is a person who thinks to clean underneath the mattress, I'm sure she would have found it at some point. If she did, she never mentioned it. After the broken television incident, my mother had run up to my bedroom and locked the door while Nana raved downstairs. She grabbed me close and pulled the both of us down onto our knees behind the bed while she prayed in Shui. Lord, protect my son. Lord, protect my son. You should pray, my mother said then, reaching for the cuckoo. I watched her eat two spoonfuls before setting it back down on the nightstand. Is it okay? I asked. She shrugged, turned her back to me once more. I went to the lab. Han wasn't there, so the room was a livable temperature. I set my jacket on the back of a chair, got myself ready, 
then grabbed a couple of my mice to prep them for surgery. I shaved the fur from the tops of their heads until I saw their scalps. I carefully drilled through those, wiping the blood away until I found the bright red of their brains. The chest of the anesthetized rodents expanding and deflating mechanically as they breathed their unconscious breaths. Though I had done this millions of times, it still awed me to see a brain, to know that if I could only understand this little organ inside this one tiny mouse, that understanding still wouldn't speak to the full intricacy of the comparable organ inside my own head. And yet, I had to try to understand, to extrapolate from that limited understanding in order to apply it to those of us who made up the species Homo sapiens, the most complex animal, the only animal who believed he had transcended his kingdom, as one of my high school biology teachers used to say. That belief, that transcendence, was held within this organ itself, infinite, unknowable, soulful, perhaps even magical. I had traded the Pentecostalism of my childhood for this new religion, this new quest, knowing that I would never fully know. I was a sixth-year PhD candidate in neuroscience at the Stanford University School of Medicine. My research was on the neural circuits of reward-seeking behavior. Once, on a date during my first year of grad school, I had bored a guy stiff by trying to explain to him what I did all day. He'd taken me to Tofu House in Palo Alto, and as I watched him struggle with his chopsticks, losing several pieces of bulgogi to the napkin in his lap, I told him all about the medial prefrontal cortex, nucleus accumbens, two-photon calcium imaging. We know that the medial prefrontal cortex plays a critical role in suppressing reward-seeking behavior. It's just that the neural circuitry that allows it to do so is poorly understood. I'd met him on OkCupid. He had straw blonde hair, skin perpetually at the end phase of a sunburn. He looked like a SoCal surfer. The entire time we'd messaged back and forth, I'd wondered if I was the first black girl he'd ever asked out if he was checking some kind of box off his list of new and exotic things he'd like to try, like the Korean food in front of us, which he'd already given up on. Huh, he said. Sounds interesting. Maybe he'd expected something different. There were only five women in my lab of 28, and I was one of three black PhD candidates in the entire med school. I had told SoCal Surfer that I was getting my doctorate, but I hadn't told him what I was getting it in because I didn't want to scare him away. Neuroscience may have screamed smart, but it didn't really scream sexy. Adding to that my blackness, maybe I was too much of an anomaly for him. He never called me back. From then on, I told Dates that my job was to get mice hooked on cocaine before taking it away from them. Two in three ask the same question. So do you just, like, have a ton of cocaine? I never admitted that we'd switched from cocaine to insure. It was easier to get and sufficiently addictive for the mice. 
I relished the thrill of having something interesting and illicit to say to these men, most of whom I would sleep with once and then never see again. It made me feel powerful to see their names flash across my phone screen hours, days, weeks after they'd seen me naked, after they'd dug their fingers into my back, sometimes drawing blood. Reading their texts, I liked to feel the marks they'd left. I felt like I could suspend them there, just names on my phone screen. But after a while, they stopped calling, moved on, and then I would feel powerful in their silence, at least for a little while. I wasn't accustomed to power in relationships, power in sexuality. I had never been asked on a date in high school, not once. I wasn't cool enough, white enough, enough. In college, I had been shy and awkward, still molting the skin of a Christianity that insisted I save myself for marriage, that left me fearful of men and of my body. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. I'm pretty, right? I asked my mother once. We were standing in front of the mirror while she put her makeup on for work. I don't remember how old I was, only that I wasn't allowed to wear makeup yet. I had to sneak it when my mother wasn't around, but that wasn't too hard to do. My mother worked all the time. She was never around. What kind of question is that? She asked. She grabbed my arm and jerked me toward the mirror. Look, she said. And at first I thought she was angry at me. I tried to look away, but every time my eyes fell, my mother would jerk me to attention once more. She jerked me so many times I thought my arm would come loose from the socket. Look at what God made. Look at what I made, she said in Chui. We stared at ourselves in the mirror for a long time. We stared until my mother's work alarm went off, the one that told her it was time to leave one job in order to get to the other. She finished putting her lipstick on, kissed her reflection in the mirror, and rushed off. I kept staring at myself after she left, kissing my own reflection back. I watched my mice groggily spring back to life, recovering from the anesthesia and woozy from the painkillers I'd given them. I'd injected a virus into the nucleus accumbens and implanted a lens into their brains so that I could see their neurons firing as I ran my experiments. I sometimes wondered if they noticed the added weight they carried on their heads, but I tried not to think thoughts like that, tried not to humanize them, because I worried it would make it harder for me to do my work. I cleaned up my station and went to my office to try to do some writing. I was supposed to be working toward a paper, presumably my last before graduating. The hardest part, putting the figures together, usually only took me a few weeks or so, but I had been twiddling my thumbs, dragging things out, running my experiments over and over again until the idea of stopping, of writing, of graduating seemed impossible. I'd put a little warning on the wall above my desk to whip myself into shape. 20 minutes of writing a day or else. 
or else what, I wondered. Anyone could see it was an empty threat. After 20 minutes of doodling, I pulled out the journal entry from years ago that I kept hidden in the bowels of my desk to read on those days when I was frustrated with my work, when I was feeling low and lonely and useless and hopeless, or when I wished I had a job that paid me more than the $17,000 stipend to stretch through a quarter in this expensive college town. Dear God, Buzz is going to prom and he has a suit on. It's navy blue with a pink tie and a pink pocket square. TBM had to order the suit special because Buzz is so tall that they didn't have anything for him in the store. We spent all afternoon taking pictures of him and we were all laughing and hugging and TBM was crying and saying, you're so beautiful over and over. And the limo came to pick Buzz up so he could pick his date up. And he stuck his head out of the sunroof and waved at us. He looked normal. Please, God, let him stay like this forever. My brother died of a heroin overdose three months later. This story was an excerpt written and performed by Yaa Jesse from her novel, Transcending Kingdom. Transcending Kingdom is available now on shelves. The music in this episode was created by Tim Carplus. You might recognize Tim's name from previous episodes. He helps us out a lot on the show, and he's just an all-around wonderful dude. You should definitely check out his music by Googling Tim Carplus. Thank you to Jessica Spitz and Eric Simonhoff from WME, as well as the folks over at Knopf. And thank you to Tim Carplus for mixing this episode. Go check out Shane Milner's original comic for this episode. He works really hard on making these, so if you could, you could just find these at our Instagram and Twitter at StoryBoundPod. StoryBound is arranged, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. This show's theme was developed by Grain Table, and thank you to Modestus Mankus for this outro sample. If you want to tell us what you think of the show, well, you can find us on Twitter at StoryBoundPod, or you can tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. New episodes are released every Tuesday. Next week, you'll hear an original story by Phil Cly. I wanted to take a quick moment to talk to you about the digital book world, or DBW, as some refer to it as. Uh, DBW is the annual gathering of the wide world of publishing, which will bring together the innovators, experts, and newsmakers of the publishing industry. This year's DBW takes place as a digital event from September 14th through September 16th, and the conference will feature some of publishing's most influential leaders, and it will also present the 2020 Digital Book World Awards. Registration for the DBW is available at digitalbookworld.com. Listeners can use the code PODGLOMERATE for complimentary registration. PODGLOMERATE CEO Jeff Umbro and associate publisher of LitHub Justin Alvarez, both executive producers of Storybound, will be speaking about the state of literary podcasts, so it's worth checking out. DBW again will take place uh, between September 14th and September 16th. Um, Just go to digitalbookworld.com hours, days, weeks, a ton of cocaine, hours, days, weeks, a ton of cocaine, hours, days, 
weeks, a ton of cocaine. Hours, days, weeks, a ton of cocaine. I'd met him on OkCupid. 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 Hours, days, OkCupid. Weeks, OkCupid. Hours, days, weeks, a ton of cocaine. Hours, days, weeks, OkCupid. Hours, days, weeks, the bright red of their brains. Hours, days, weeks, the bright red of a ton of cocaine. Okay, Cupid. The bright red of Okay, Cupid. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.